My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you here. Well, um, we're going to begin talking about the consecrated life. And because we're beginning a fast here at, at the beginning of the year, um, starting tomorrow, I thought I would talk about fasting. Now, before you head for the doors, it's not just about foregoing food. We're going to talk about fasting in its totality. We're going to take a 35,000-foot view of it and see what God has to say about more than just denying ourselves a culinary delight. Turn with me over to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 58. We're going to read verses 5 through 12. Isaiah 58, verses 5 through 12. Isaiah is prophesying. The Lord is speaking through him. <clears throat> and the Lord says, Is it a fast like this which I choose? Verse 5. A day for a man to humble himself? Is it for bowing one's head like a reed and for spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day of the Lord? Is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Verse 7. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Verse 8. Then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth. And your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, and the pointing of the finger, and the speaking of wickedness, and if you give yourself to the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness, and your gloom will become like midday. Verse 11. And the Lord will continually guide you, and satisfy your desire in scorched places. And give strength to your bones, and you will be like a well-watered garden, and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins, and you will raise up age-old foundations. And you will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. Lord, help us as we study today. Isaiah was a phenomenal prophet had the privilege of serving under four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He had a great amount of integrity. He believed that, that the Lord should be the ruler of his own people and that the people should not be the determiner of their own direction or destiny. And he was doing everything he possibly could by being a prophet to help the people understand which way they ought to go and how they ought to respond. Though it did take a while for the people to hear what he had to say. Unfortunately, they were tone deaf to what God was speaking. They just had not tuned in to his audible frequency. And so there was a disparity between what Isaiah was saying by the Spirit of God and what the people were doing and hearing. The people were going to church. They were pretty faithful. They were tithing. They were offering their sacrifices. In chapter 1, they were doing it so well, yet there was a distinction between what they did on their version of Sunday 
And what they did on their version of Monday through Saturday, such, such a wide gap between the two in consistency that God said this, stop being religious. I don't want it anymore. Not interested in your sacrifices. Don't bring them to me again. You seem to desire the vertical relationship between me and you, but your horizontal relationships between people don't make any sense. In fact, they are an abomination to me. I can't stand the way you treat folk. So until you get that part right, stop acting like your religion is going to cover all your sin out there. You can't just come on Sunday morning hoping that everything you do by the lifting of your hands and the singing and, and, and the offering that you give is going to fix what you did on Saturday. Doesn't work like that. That is not to say God is not a forgiving God. Indeed, he is, or else we would not be here. But the continual hypocrisy that is well-known and cognizant in the minds of every person is not tolerated in God's kingdom. He's not going to allow that to continue. As a representation of who he is. So he told the people, stop it. Stop church until you can get it right out there. Because all you've got is a placebo. Something that seems to satisfy but really has no effect at all. And fasting was a part of that. They were religious in their orientation. And boy, they were fasting regularly. And if you look in the first four verses of Isaiah chapter 58, the people are complaining. They're saying, how come we have fasted and you have not seen? We have sacrificed and you have not noticed. Where are you, God? We're doing the right thing. Which is the the precipitant to God beginning to speak about this. Is this the kind of fast which I choose? For a man to humble himself and to bow his head like a reed. For him to lay out sackcloth and ashes like a bed. Do you think this is the thing that impresses me? Now, it's not that God is not looking for humility. He is. But he's not looking for humility in the absence of righteousness. He's not looking for humility when you're acting wickedly. He's not looking for pretense. He's not, he's not impressed with front running. He wants folk that are real. And he says, this is not the kind of fast which I choose. And it's important that you get this. Though fasting is important, it's important that you get this. It is not about you. Fasting is not about you. Fasting is about what happens in the lives of others in the community. Now, fasting is is done quite often in Scripture. We don't have a lot of examples of it, but we do have the the practice of it and that people talk about their fasting. We see it happening with Ezra as the people of Israel were, were captive in Babylon. And he was appointed by Artaxerxes, who was the king of Persia at the time, to bring the people, a group of captives, out of Babylon back to to Jerusalem. But Artaxerxes was not providing an army for them, and so they were pretty vulnerable. They had a lot of wealth, they had a lot of people, a lot of goods. And so uh, Ezra said, let's fast for three days and believe that God will protect us on the way. And indeed, the Lord did. There's an example of how fasting can be beneficial, not just to you, but to others. And the emphasis was, Ezra said, we're going to fast for our loved ones. We're going to fast for our community. We see a thing called the Daniel fast, which was not really a fast as much as it was a consecratory act to say, I'm not going to eat at the king's table. Now, Daniel happened to live in Babylon, too. He happened to live at a different time than Ezra. But being a, 
a Jew living in Babylon, he still had his dietary restrictions. And, and though, though he was seen to be one of the preferred Jews in, the, in the, the deportation from Jerusalem to Babylon, and that he was a nobleman, and he was brought into the king's training center so he could be trained in the culture and the language and the arts of the Babylonians, that he might serve personally the king. And though he had all those privileges, he said, I'm still a Jew. Does that make any sense to you? See, you're still a Christian, though you live in this world. You can't become Babylonian. You ought to have a different diet. And I'm not talking about food. You ought to have a different thing that you desire. Your palate ought to be trained in a different way. You ought to love this word. Folk from the world think this word don't make no sense. They think it's a compilation of nice little stories, fables, things that kind of are, 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 are salve to folks that are going through difficult moments, oozing and beginning to ease all their pain. No, no, no. We understand the word to be powerful in life. And if we do, you ought to have a different regular diet. Daniel said, I won't eat from the king's table. Now, the king's table was sweet. I mean, when you're eating from the palace food, you're eating the finest diet imaginable. But it was a Babylonian diet. So, crocodile, iguana, squid, lobster. Now I'm getting into what you like, see. (laughs) You just didn't know what a Babylonian would eat. But the Jews had a specific regimen. They had a dietary restriction. And for Daniel, this was important to him. He said, I'm still a worshiper of God. I'm still Jewish. And for him, Asheriah, Azariah, excuse me, Mishael, Azariah, and Asheriah, those four, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, they said, we will not eat from the king's table. We'll eat vegetables. And as a result of their consecration, the Lord allowed them the privilege of looking better and stronger to their employer, employers. As a result of your consecration, you'll be the last fired. You'll appear as more presentable as anybody else. God will allow you the privilege because you have decided to do his will and not become Babylonian in your orientation. He will do stuff for you. And it says that Daniel and those three boys became more powerful and more influential. Ten times better did they become than all of the others who were trained. It wasn't necessarily a fast, but it was a consecratory moment. But here we see the people fasting. And they were primarily fasting for their own benefit. But you'll see in verse 3 and 4 that God is beginning to respond to them on the basis of their fast because today it says they were fasting differently. Somehow or another, the Lord had gotten their attention. Isaiah, through prophesying year after year after year after year, the word had softened the, the corporate soul of Israel. And now they were beginning to hear. And the Lord said, I haven't listened to you because you haven't fasted like you do today. Like you're fasting today? Oh, now. Now we're make, make, making some headway. And let me tell you, let me explain to you, now that your ears are opened, let me explain to you what a fast should look like. It's not about just humbling yourself. It's not about just bowing your head like a reed. It's not about just making sure that, that you are presenting yourself to God in a right way. It's also about abstaining from some other stuff. This is the kind of fast I choose, to loose the bands of wickedness, 
to undo the ties of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. I realize you want to fast food, and you want to fast water, and you want to prove yourself as being consecrated to God. But hear me, why don't we try fasting wickedness? Why don't we try fasting oppression? Why don't we try fasting being selfish? Why don't we try fasting lust? Try fasting these things that are destroying your life and the lives of others. That's the kind of fast I choose. The title of this message, The Fasted Life. Even though we're going to fast this week, and it's important, um, my hope is that it would continue all the way through the year. Not the deprivation of food but the fasting of stuff that's destroying you. Just stop sinning. Just stop it. Please, I beg you, stop it. Minimally, you're stopping your own progress when you do it. Maximally, you're destroying your life and hurting the lives of others. I beg you, stop it. Undo the bands of wickedness. Those things which have tied you to somebody by wicked action, unloose them. Break the tie. Break the yoke that you have put over somebody else's life to serve you. Stop oppressing people. No longer act this way. Don't just consider your consecration on a Sunday morning to be the only thing you're responsible for. Make sure you're treating people well. And it's not just about not doing wrong. It's about doing right. He goes on and says... You ought to make sure you divide your bread with the hungry. If you see somebody homeless, you should bring them into your house. If you see them naked, you ought to clothe them. And do not hide yourself from your own flesh. Care about people. Hear me, this message was not to the clergy, though the clergy should hear it. This message was to the average Jewish believer out there. He was talking to anybody who would hear. Start living right, please. This is the kind of fast which I have chosen, says the Lord, through Isaiah. Not only not do wrong, but start doing right. When you see, when you see people who are hurting, when you find folk who are in need, make sure you are the supply. And the beauty is this. He says some things will happen when you do that. Your light will break out like the dawn. Now, does anybody have any question about whether the sun's coming up tomorrow? No. Did you have any about the sun coming up today? Were you surprised yesterday when it came up? That's the regularity with which your illumination should appear in your life. Regularly, every day, as faithful as the sun coming up. Meaning, if you don't know what to do, you're able to ask God and... Right on time, the answer comes. Illumination comes to your life as it should be on the regular, like the sun coming up. And it dispels the darkness when it does. It says not only should illumination happen, but it says your recovery will spring forth speedily. Not just talking about bodily recovery, though that's included. Oh, we want to be healed whenever we get sick, and we want it to come quicker than just a natural process of our immune system fighting. But what about the recovery of your business when it's broken and and broke? What about the recovery of your relationships when they don't seem to be able to be mended? 
God says, I will bring recovery quickly, speedily to your situation if you fast like this. If you begin to incorporate the, the putting away of wickedness in your life and the doing of right. Oh, the appeal that Isaiah had by the Spirit of God was just folk live the way you're supposed to. That's all it was. Just live the way you're supposed to. Recovery will come to you. And then he says, your righteousness will go before you. Oh, this is fun. It would be like you go for a job interview and you got all your stuff. You got your resume, the whole works. And, and, and the employer says, I don't need it. I've heard about you. You got the job. Your right deeds will precede you so that you don't need to toot your own horn. Folk will understand more about you than you would ever know. And when you show up, it seems like they know you already because your righteousness has gone before you. Now, that, that means this, that you would have had to do some right things. Now, I know that's a complicated concept. Just let it sit for a minute if you're not getting it. That means that you would have had to do some right things for your righteousness to go before you. Which means you needed to go to the preceding verse and make sure that you are dividing your bread with the hungry. That you're opening your home to those that have done, that you're clothing your neck and, and the naked, and you are not hiding yourself from your own flesh. God says, I'll make sure those deeds go before you. And if that wasn't good enough, it's good if God does stuff before you. I mean, already prepares a way before you get to the way. He says, the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Anybody got stuff you just, you done that you're not proud of? And you don't ever want anybody to know. You don't want it to catch up with you. The congregation in nine seemed to identify more with that than you. <laughs> So let's see if you can take some of that to somebody you know who has a past. I got stuff I don't want folk to know. I lived wrong for 20 years. Now the people who are most close to me know me. And there's nothing they don't know about me because I let them know. But there's some folk I don't want to appear. Some stuff I don't want to appear to Washington Post because I don't want everybody to know. I didn't commit no crimes, nothing for which I need to be thrown in jail. It's just stuff. After you live 20 years, you have done stuff. I got right 32 years ago, and there's nothing since then that I ain't too, I'm too concerned about. But before that time, God says this, you live right. I won't just bury that stuff. I'll, I'll make it appear as if my glory has been following you all your life. They won't be able to see your stuff because my glory will be in the way. My glory will be your rear guard. You live right, this is what God does. He erases your past and does it in such a way that he makes people think, well, even though it wasn't good, look at how it's turned out. Look at what the Lord has done. That's amazing how they, oh, well, okay. <laughs> glory to the Lord, your rear guard. And then on top of that, he says, and, and because you live this way, when you call out to me, I'll answer. 
the heavens will not appear to be brass. The Lord will respond to you. And it's not just in a general sense, in a specific sense. That if you, you can't find, you, you know his voice is someplace around, you know his will's close, you're in, you're, you're in the general vicinity. When you cry out and say, Lord, I'm here, but I can't really, he'll say, here I am. Localization. When, when, you cry, when you're in the general vicinity and you don't know where it really, you, 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 ever, you ever followed MapQuest? It'll bring you in the general vicinity. <laughs> but generally, it'll take you like three. It, it's one of these five addresses. <laughs> yeah, it's it just as it good as it can get. But then, if you see somebody in your rearview mirror going, hey, back up. That's a here I am. That's what God says. You get in the general vicinity when you call. But when you cry out, here I am. That's when you live right and you stop wickedness. You stop sleeping around. You stop drug abuse. You stop being selfish. You stop being harsh. You submit yourself to God on a regular basis and you become a real Christian. You just start living right. You develop a pattern of victory in your life, not defeat. Christianity is hard, yeah, but it's not complicated. You just get up every day. And you don't live minimally. You don't, you're not trying to figure out, okay, what can I get away with and still get to heaven? How much can I do and, and not disqualify myself? You get up every day and you say this, God, what can I do to make you happy? How can I make sure that when I lie my head on the pillow tonight, you're smiling? That's all you need to ask every day. Every day. And if you follow that prescription, you'll have these benefits following you. Now, verse 5 through verse 8 are a summary of what God will do. And then Isaiah goes verse 9 through 12 and kind of recapitulates it. He he resummarizes in a different way, but with greater distinction. He says, if you break the yoke, if you remove the yoke from your midst... And you stop the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness. If you refuse to accuse, you don't talk about folk. You just don't let your lips run long and wrong. You don't tell people who don't need to know what they don't need to know. What is the point of the finger except to say, they did it. Them. God says, stop that. We need to be people that are tight-lipped with our words. And don't speak ill of folk. If you got something to say, go ahead and say it to them. And even do that with love. But if somebody else doesn't need to know, they don't need to know. And you don't need to be the bearer of tales. No benefit there. the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness. If you divide your bread with the hungry, if you give yourself to the hungry and you satisfy the desire of the afflicted, he, the desire of the afflicted he's resummarizing. And there are, they, they, listen, everybody out there is afflicted. Hear me. 
Everybody is afflicted. They've got to put on a really pretty professional face every day because they got to work. They got to do their job. They have to be faithful and they've got to be responsible. But they're going through stuff. And we as believers need to be sensitive to figure out how can I satisfy? How can I put a balm? How can I ease their pain? What can I do? Satisfy the desire of the afflicted. It says, then your light will, will appear in darkness. Now, before he said, your light will come like the dawn. But here he says, your light will appear in darkness. The distinction is, the dawn is timed. So you want your illumination to come when it should. But what, what, what happens when it's not time? When it's 2 a.m. And the sun has another four or five hours before it appears. When you're walking in darkness and the, the, it, 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 the, the timing of your illumination is not for another three weeks. God says this, because you have lived right, I'll make sure that your illumination comes even when it shouldn't. Hallelujah. Everybody else may be groping around, but this, it will just appear in the midst of darkness. And your gloom will become like midday. Now, when I was in my 20s, early 20s, I struggled with depression. It was long before they had Prozac, and I was never clinically diagnosed. If I was, I imagine they, they would have prescribed Valium, but I, I wouldn't have taken it. Primarily because I didn't want to become addicted to anything. And two, I didn't have the money. I was only making $5,000 a year. But I know what it means to, to feel the dark cloud come over my life. And to sense no hope, even though I know there is hope. Depression is not logical, it's spiritual. It makes no sense because there is always the possibility, if you are still breathing, there's a possibility of God delivering you and helping you. Hope is always there, but depression doesn't allow you to see it. You can't perceive it. You can't hold on to it. And all you think about is the inevitability of the evil, the bad, the wicked happening to you, falling into another ditch and never being able to get out. You think nobody loves you. You think there's no way for anything good to happen to you. And even if it is good, it's only going to last for a minute. Then you're going to sink back into a hole. I've been there. I've lived there. I know. And though I would not have taken any medication if I was clinically diagnosed, I, I understand people who do. And my exhortation should not be that which stops you. I'll get back to this in just a minute. If you have been diagnosed and a doctor has prescribed, continue doing what you are doing until you can find God. But let me help you. I found him. He helped me. I got in my Bible. And I realized that depression was based primarily on wrong thought. At least mine was. And although there may have been a predisposition in my soul to go that way, that then trained my thoughts to think that way, I said, God, there is nothing greater than your word. And your word can then retrain my soul, which can then predispose my thoughts to think right. So I started reading this Bible and realizing that there were good things in there for me and that God had a hope and a future for me. And there was no condemnation. The enemy, even though he tried things, he was not going to be able to destroy me. He wasn't going to be able to determine my destiny. God, my father, loved me. And he had good things in store for me. So I began to read my Bible and understand his promises. And I didn't just read it theologically. I read it for health. This was my prescription daily. I took gospels every day. 
That's really bad. That's really bad. Delete that, please. Ah. God help me. He just helped me. He trained my mind. You know, that there's a passage over in Romans chapter 8, and Paul is trying to get people to understand this through the whole chapter. He starts off with, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the entire chapter is about victory. And he, he gets into the, the, the genre of court and legality. And he says, if God be for you, who can be against you? And that in the context of when we sin, against whom is our sin the most? I realize we hurt people, but ultimately, who is the judge of our sin? God. So if Jesus Christ has died for the punishment of our sin, and God has forgiven us based on our our acceptance of that sacrifice and what Christ Jesus has done for us, if he has released us of all the consequence, then where is our accuser? If our accuser no longer brings an accusation against us, it's like Jesus said when he was looking at the woman who had committed adultery and everybody was there bringing an accusation. And after he finished with the moment in John, he looked at the woman and said, where are your accusers? Mm-hmm. Sir, they're gone. Then get up and go. When there is nobody to accuse, the accused is free. Now, the enemy can do it all day long, but God says, no, 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 you don't have a right. They sinned against me, not you. That's why he says if God is now for us rather than against us, then there is no one who can be against us. Are you listening to me? There's power in that, y'all. See, these are the passages I rolled over my brain and my soul every day thinking, why am I downcast? What's wrong with you, soul? Put your hope in God. I began to look at what David said, who struggled with depression himself. Why am I downcast? I looked at what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, we were so downcast that we despaired even of life. Verses 8, 9, and 10, 2 Corinthians 1. Meaning this brother thought that death was better than living. We didn't want to be here anymore. But he said, God brought us to the point where we could find the end of ourselves that we could understand what resurrection power looks like. Not just resurrection once we had gone into the grave, but resurrection through the life we are now living. And then he goes on to talk about victory through the rest of the book. These are the passages that I ate every day. My gloom turned to midday. And now when the cloud appears on the horizon, I'm able to go this, breathe the breath of God's word over that thing and shoo it away. Haven't struggled with it in 27 years. But that's not just because I confess scripture. That's because I also started living right. Writer and writer every day. It says when, you, when all that happens, then the Lord will continually guide you. That's, wow. I mean, it, it, I, I'm convinced that all technology points to God. At some point, 
All, all the navigational systems. That's cool. Wouldn't that be cool to have that in your head every day? Turn right. No. Recalculating route. <laughs> make, a, make a legal U-turn at this intersection. Continual guidance from God. Continual. It says he'll strengthen our bones. Not just your individual structures, but the structures that you build. Parents, you want confirmation that you're building right in your home the strength that you need in order to preserve the structures that are making a wonderful environment for children. Whether it's your business, whether it's your, your church, whether it's your ministry, he will strengthen the structures that are there. He will cause you to be watered well, like a garden. And you'll have springs of waters that do not fail. You won't need just Sunday morning to get you happy. See, this is shower. This is rain. Somebody has, has decided to, to be inspired by God and give you a shower of his information on a regular basis. That's what church is. But you ought to be able to have this spring that bubbles up on the inside of you that regularly comes so that you are not in need of this. This is icing on the cake. This isn't the sustenance that you need weekly. If this is it, no, 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 no. I want you to have it. You need to come. But this ought to be the extra from what you're getting regularly. A spring whose waters do not fail. And then lastly, those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. The second generation gets to come in and things that are broken that the previous generation couldn't fix, they say, don't worry, I'll take that. There's a tie to the building process as a result of people living well. And you will raise up old age-old foundations. One of the reasons we sing hymns at least once every three weeks is because I want everybody to understand that, that comes here, that worship didn't start with this generation. That's right. There are some great folks that understood something about God that wrote excellent songs way back 50, 60, 200 years ago. We need to figure out what they were doing and incorporate that, that in our reality today. Amen. Foundations, age-old foundations. They'll call you a repairer of the breach. Oh, we get to be the ones that, 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 that stop, put, put a stop in the vulnerability of people's protective walls. Where there are holes where we see, man, you better fix that or else something's going to come in and get you. You better stop that. You better do some things. We are the ones that say, here, we'll go ahead and fix that for you. We'll, and we become those that build the pathways of life. Restore the streets in which to dwell. We help people know, hey, take a right here. Repent. Do this. Say you're sorry. Get right with God. Read your Bible. Go to this meeting. Go to this mission trip. We begin to build pathways where people can find life. This is what the fasted life looks like. And it's my hope this week, and I don't know that there is any more tone-setting message that I've ever preached than this one because 2013 is really important to me. I think God wants to do some marvelous things in this year. But I want to participate with him. I'm, I don't want to wait on the sidelines and watch him. I want to get involved. I want him to use you and me in the process, not just wait. The fasted life helps us do it. And this week, though I want everybody to do something, maybe you can't give up food. You, you got health issues. Or maybe you just can't give up food. <laughs> give up something. 
tell God this, I want you more than that. And when you used to be doing that, pray. Give up something. And let's watch God do something great in us and for our community.